attended um, various OTJR events and I'm lucky enough to count among my friends various OTJR members and presenters and so it's really wonderful for me today to be here um, and, and thank you all for coming here and, and it's so lovely to see many um, friends and, and, and even family in the, in the group today so I'm, I'm uh, a bit nervous because there's nothing more nerve-wracking than presenting to people who you know and whose work you deeply respect. <laughs> um, so uh, I shall hope to do justice um, uh, to, to the book. Um, I'm very honoured also to have Laura here today with me and, and thank you so much Laura for accepting the invitation. Uh, to read and comment on my book. Um, the reason why I invited Laura to the OTJR seminar is because uh, one of my broader goals in life um, with and also beyond the book is to um, establish dialogue between the discipline of anthropology and the field of transitional justice. Um, I know that it's becoming more uh, common within the field of transitional justice scholarship to use ethnography as a method to investigate issues on, on uh, transitional contexts. But of course, um, there's a big discussion as to the difference between ethnography and anthropology, ethnography being a method and anthropology being a discipline which engages with um, particular sorts of bodies of social theory and so on and so forth. And I just thought it would be very interesting to share this discussion with uh, an anthropologist um, such as Laura with a group of transitional justice scholars to see what kind of discussion uh, we, can, we can bridge because while I, at the same time as approving of the distinction between ethnography and anthropology, I also think one shouldn't police disciplinary boundaries too uh, dogmatically. So I think it's an interesting and fertile opportunity to have that discussion and I hope it's the first of many. Um, the peace community of San Jose Apartado um, is one of the most emblematic groups of victims of the Colombian armed conflict. They have suffered every single human rights violation documented in the Colombian conflict from multiple forced displacements to massacres to torture to rape to um, uh, selective assassinations to threats, etc., etc., etc. They are pioneering uh, and also very well known within the international and Colombian human rights community for declaring themselves neutral. Um, to the armed conflict, which was a strategy that they took from a creative interpretation of international humanitarian law's principle of distinction, which stipulates that combatants in an armed conflict should distinguish between civilians and combatants and not attack civilians. It's like having a Red Cross sign on the hospital. And so what they did in 1997, this group of peasant farmers um, was to declare themselves neutral and to establish a series of living areas in which they uh, put up signs saying this is civilian population only. And they requested, rather they demanded, that none of the parties to the armed conflict, which of course in Colombia has been going on for 50 years between the left-wing guerrilla, and the right-wing paramilitaries and the Colombian army, requested and demanded that none of the parties to the conflict enter their living spaces. Because just having the presence of Colombian soldiers by your house means that if the guerrilla are uh, passing on the opposite hill, uh, they can target the soldiers and thereby you might be caught in the middle. So this is a very brave and very courageous and very um, pioneering thing to do. There have been various groups in Colombia that have done it uh, since then. They were one of the first, but not the first. Um, but they have also been, um, in a way, this, this position of neutrality has made them uh, be glorified by the international human rights community. And equally, they have been condemned by uh, sectors of the Colombian state, notably the army, who of course were not terribly pleased at being told they couldn't enter the living spaces of this rural community, um, and also sectors of the Colombian establishment who have um, used paramilitary violence against them. I first got to know the peace community when I was working in Colombia in an organization called Peace Brigades International which provides international accompaniment to human rights defenders who are at risk in conflict zones by sending teams of unarmed international observers to literally walk alongside threatened people. And the presence of international observers creates a deterrence effect. And I worked in this region of Urabá in the northwest, which is one of the most geostrategically um, uh, and, and economically rich areas of Colombia and has been one of the epicenters of the Colombian conflict for many years. Um, I lived there for two years and I worked with various different organizations and communities and one of the communities that I worked with was the peace community of San Jose de Partadón. 
after I had done this work for two years um, and been very kind of bowled over by um, the, the kind of the courage that these people have on a daily basis, I decided I wanted to um, go back to academia and retrain as an anthropologist. And I wanted to do so in order to do my research on the peace community in order to understand intellectually, analytically, what I had spent the last two years living empirically. So I went to the National University of Colombia, um, where I did my master's degree, which um, in Colombia, the master's level of postgraduate research is rather different. I also have an MPhil from Cambridge. I certainly did a lot less work for that than I did for this. Um, and I, I, I would like to um, make the comment that there are many outstanding master's theses which come out of this university and other universities in Colombia, uh, some of which do get published into books in Colombia itself. But I have the privilege um, of being English um, and being able to frame my argument in such a way as it is of interest to an international anglophone audience, which means I'm able to publish it, um, it with a prestigious academic publishers, but it's actually terribly unfair that I should have this privilege. Um, and, um, and that privilege is also part, of course, of the structures of inequality that characterize uh, transnational relationships in academia, and most notably anthropology, of course. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful for this opportunity and I want to make the most of it, but I'm also conscious that it's not necessarily uh, completely fair that I should have the opportunity to do so. Um, having made that comment a bit about how I came to write this book, I want to talk to you a bit about the main contributions that this book makes and um, perhaps ask you a question as transitional justice scholars, which some of you are, um, to see what you think about that, which is um, having experienced the peace community uh, as seen through the frame of the international human rights community, um, but also as seen through the frame of the hard right in Colombia, which has stigmatized them for many years, I decided I wanted to conduct a fundamentally anthropological exercise of trying to approach them and understand them in their own terms. No more and no less. I didn't want to take them as a case study for resistance or um, civilian peacekeeping or grassroots peace building or um, rightful resistance uh, or any of the other categories that other scholars have in fact engaged with the peace community around, um, which are valuable case studies, but I wanted to do something different, which was to try to understand them in the sense proposed by Bourdieu, who says that when we approach another human being as a socially constructed human being and recognize um, that if we had been born in their shoes and had their same social experiences, undoubtedly we would think like them, feel like them, and act like them. Which is also, in a sense, to recognize our own social constructedness in, in the world. Um, and in order to do this, I started from a comment that one of my friends from the community made right at the beginning when I was leaving my work as an NGO uh, worker and about to, to transition to anthropologist. And he said, you know, some organizations say it's either the political or the economic. You can't have both. You know, either we can work with you on the political stuff and the human rights violations, or we can work with you on the economic stuff. But we don't understand that, because for us, the two are connected. And that was the seed with which I started. In a way, I kind of felt like he planted that seed in my head and then I kind of didn't let it go. <laughs> um, and that's why it ended up being a, a kind of counterpoint research um, between chocolate and politics. The peace community have been producers of organic cacao for a lot longer than they've been a peace community. Their daily exercise, their daily life, their daily culture, their daily work is going and producing cacao. And so one of my main um, research methods was to go with them. Um, I had spent two years being not allowed to quote-unquote interfere. When you work with an international NGO, you have a very strict mandate of non-interference in their political issues and non-interference, and I certainly was not allowed to, get to go around this conflict zone with a machete in my hand, um, <laughs> because had I done so, I might have been 
had pictures taken of me and there might have been captions in the local newspapers, international community armed themselves or something similarly absurd. But I wanted to go and experience in my body what their day-to-day -day work was like. Um, because actually, cacao is a very extraordinary fruit. How many people recognize this? About 20% of the room. Um, some of them are, I do know work on Colombia and food systems, so they already have a good excuse. Um, <laughs> but cacao is a very um, aphrodisiac, exotic, fetishized, um, symbolic product. It's not a potato that you just pull out of the ground, dust off and toss into a bag. It's got a whole process and it's a, it's a technology. Um, and so what I wanted to understand was how does that technology work but not in order for me to learn it, but for me to understand what it means for them to know it. Um, in order to tell the story of the peace community as a political story, as a social movement, I wanted to understand the cultural context which engenders their political actions. Um, and in order to do that, I went into their everyday world of cacao production, and that's why it's called chocolate politics and peace building. Um, in order to approximate the everyday reality of the peace community in their own terms, neither glorifying nor condemning them, I propose in this book uh, to see the construction of their everyday identity narratives as practice. And I use um, practice theory, um, I follow Bourdieu's uh, argument about the logic of practice in order to understand um, the production of everyday narratives as an everyday practice. Now usually, um, Bourdieu's argument is essentially that uh, practices, the practical sense um, that we have of our everyday actions is that our practice, our actions have sense. They are sensical, that is a word. Um, it is the perception that a practice is sensible and that perception is formed by existing and acting in determined social fields. He calls them body schemes. They are embodied knowledge. And these body schemes are transmitted transubjectively. We interact in a particular social field. We learn the practices that belong to that social field, and they become naturalized. So they become sensible to us. Um, this is Bourdieu's way of resolving the structure-agency dichotomy, which, of course, is this problem in which you're always asking, well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Are you um, are you a product of culture? Is culture a deterministic structure, which means that you don't have any free will, that all of your actions are simply um, product of the context you're born in? Or um, it's, you know, that's, that's you know, one kind of extreme. Or is it that we have free will to do whatever we like and we can make it up as we go along and we're not at all influenced by the culture that we're born into? Well, of course, the idea of practice theory is to balance the two um, and to look at how human beings, in fact, are, of course, highly conditioned by the context and the social fields in which they are socialized, but they also have free will to innovate and um, create um, absolutely uh, unique things. Bourdieu uses this particularly to look at the naturalization of gender relationships in Kabyle olive pickers, which is, of course, a very easy parallel with campesinos who go and produce cacao. But what I discovered, or what I argue anyway in the book, is that actually alongside the embodied everyday practice of producing cacao, there is also another embodied everyday practice, which is that of producing identity narratives. Um, and this goes along inextricably combined with the practice of working in the cacao fields. So this, <coughs> in order to put my kind of theoretical cards on the table, um, what do I think narratives are? They are historically and culturally constituted interpretative frameworks according to which the community every day interprets reality. In order to make that sound less vague, I want to tell you about the two narratives that I discuss in the book and that I argue constitute the mainframe of the peace community of San Jose de Partado's overall collective identity. They are the radical narrative and the organic narrative. The radical narrative is the peace community's uh, historically and culturally constituted framework according to which they interpret every single action of the Colombian state and every single political goings on. 
The peace community is um, unusual in Colombia uh, in the sense that they are in rupture with the state. That's their word, ruptura. But um, they're not unusual in the sense of being victims of the state uh, on the left who have uh, suffered many of the same things that many other left-wing groups in Colombia have suffered um, and are reacting to. So one of the points about narratives is that they're formed in interaction between members but also with external people who do things and say things, um, such as the Colombian army. So the radical narrative is formed over a process. Um, initially, the peace community declared themselves as neutral, uh, but then over time, that neutrality is attacked in different ways, uh, both physically by the Colombian army in particular and paramilitaries who ally with the Colombian army in order to carry out human rights violations, but also discursively by the Colombian army who stigmatizes them and says that they're guerrillas and so on and so forth, and justifies all kinds of horrendous um, things that happen, happen to them. And the peace community gradually form the perception that the Colombian state is illegitimate and is making alliances with paramilitaries and with multinational companies in order to exterminate them, which is not uh, an unvalid perception. Um, of course, when I treat these things as socially constructed, I am in no way saying they're not true. What I'm doing is highlighting the social constructed nature of narratives. Um, narratives such as the radical narrative, are forged out of the very real atrocities of massacres, but also subjectively. And I want to value that difference because just because one is in solidarity with a group, as I am with the peace community, that doesn't mean one necessarily agrees with the way they interpret reality. Um, and so this, this radical narrative, this process of rupture with the state, leads them to posit four conditions that they put on the table. They say, you, Colombian state, you must fulfill four points in order for us to have a relationship with you again. And those include things like a presidential apology, um, the removal of a police station in their land, which is making them a, a, a target of, of attacks, of guerrilla attacks, and so on and so forth, um, which to date has not, been, has not been achieved. So they continue to be in rupture with the state. But the point of this is that the radical narrative is self-reaffirming. So when they, at the, the, the point in which the, the rupture you know, it's crystallized, is after a particularly horrible massacre in 2005 in which um, eight people are killed, including three children, one of whom was only 18 months old, and they cut his extremities off and they sort of buried them in cacao fields. And it was really uh, important for the community as a sort of breaking point. They have suffered many massacres, but this one in particular, for various reasons, was the one that, that um, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, as it were. And they... Um, they have crystallized this narrative that the state is doing this on purpose. And now, today, 2018, the security situation has changed. Uh, the nature of the army's relationship with paramilitary groups in the region has changed. It's not innocent by any means, but it has changed from what it was in 2005. Um, but because of the perception that has been created and consolidated over and over again, any tiny movement of Colombian soldiers through the community's land, if they camp in a cacao grove and destroy a cacao tree in order to make a fire so they can cook their dinner, that is perceived by the community as more proof that the state is trying to destroy them. So, which of course, that's where I say, well, I take a step back and say objectively that's probably not the case, um, but, but actually, the important thing is to take seriously the perceptions that have been created over time throughout really, really important um, uh, you know, moments and, and, and historical um, procedures in order to, to consolidate this interpretative framework which is self-reaffirming. And every time it's self-reaffirmed, every time they go through the community's land, um, they say to each other, look, the state is trying to kill us again. And it's in that enunciation of the radical narrative that the radical narrative is reaffirmed, but also their collective identity is reaffirmed because actually that's part of what keeps them together. That's the radical narrative. The organic narrative is um, roughly corresponds to, to culture. The book is sort of divided into history, politics, and culture. The organic narrative is uh, the interpretative framework according to which the peace community um, perceives their relationship to the natural environment and to their social environment. And at its heart is an analogy between um, a community 
as a socially organised group and the idea of the organic and the symbiosis of human beings with nature. And I argue that this narrative is produced through various different um, procedures which are highly linked to the radical narrative. Various things happen in the history of the community's lifetime, such as food blockades. The paramilitaries uh, forbid people to uh, bring food into the community, which is, was a common practice in Colombia, uh, because the food could go to the guerrillas, and so they wanted to starve the guerrillas. It was a strategy of war, and of course many innocent civilian uh, peasants were affected by this. Um, and so they, um, they decided they needed to become more diverse in, in the crops that they grew in order to become self-sustainable. So this is a sort of short-term logic of protection. But in the short-term logic of protection, um, it becomes the, in the development of the organic narrative, this short-term logic becomes a philosophy of life. And the idea of self-sustainability starts to become something that's much more um, long-term and it's much more idealistic and it's much more utopian. And it's about um, living together in harmony with nature. I don't want to go into too much more detail because potentially we could have a quite interesting conversation about the, the, the organic narrative with Laura. Uh, but what I would like to um, kind of reiterate is the, the idea that, that, that the idea of the interpretative frameworks that I'm using here is useful because the practical sense that Bourdieu argues um, is the sense of a coherent internal logic to their identity narratives. It doesn't matter whether or not we agree that there is coherence to their internal logic. The coherence is a subjective uh, evaluation, and so they are a very um, uh, how can I put it? A very controversial group in Colombia. But what I've tried to do is not say one should agree with them or not, but actually just to understand their own construction of their own coherence to their logic. And this is what I would like to ask you as transitional justice scholars what you think about, because I think that this could be. Um, an interesting way to approach social movements that have, um, you know, an influence in political affairs, in political um, matters, in transitional contexts. How to understand them in their own terms without trying to argue for or against their behaviour. Um, the other important thing about these two narratives, the radical and the organic, is the fact that they are mutually inextricable. They reproduce each other in a circular reciprocity. So um, the example I've given of the, of the food blockades reconfirms to them the radical narrative because it reconfirms to them the idea that the state is out to get them. Um, and it reconfirms to them the idea that the solution to such a situation of siege is to be alternative. And I end the book by proposing that the combination of the narratives, the radical and the organic, can be seen as an overall collective identity, which I call an alternative community collective identity. And this is a term that I'm trying to offer. It's not a term they use themselves, but they use the two terms a lot. They, they, they use both of the two terms separately a lot. Um, and I, I propose to see them as an alternative community because they see themselves as alternative to a whole lot of different things, to the Colombian state, um, to the way of farming. Um, they are constantly contrasting, for example, their organic production of cacao uh, to the way of producing the bananas in the banana plantations in Apartado, which if you, if you spend any time in Apartado, it's very physically apparent, this difference, because the banana plantations are in rows and rows and rows, like chess pieces, and the, the, the soil is completely dry and cracked. Nothing grows there. There is no life there. Um, and they, every morning at 6 o'clock in the morning, you get woken up by the sound of a little biplane, which um, flies over these plantations and sprays fertilizer on it. Um, and if, you're, if you happen to be in a taxi going between municipalities at the wrong time, you will find a splash of fertilizer splashed across the window of the taxi. Um, and, and the whole kind of the feeling is, 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 is different from these incredibly beautiful um, breathing, living spaces in which the peace community work every day, which are the organic cacao groves. Um, so this alternative community narrative, and I'll end by making a point about peace building, because that's the third part of the title. The alternative community uh, collective identity that I'm trying to suggest exists um, you know, as the combination of the two 
the two narratives is um, a narrative, a collective identity which actually I think could be inspirational to Colombians all across the country at a time in which the country is engaged in a long-term debate about what does peace mean. And you'll notice that I started the conversation by saying I didn't want to look at the peace community as a case study or as a cipher for anything other than themselves. But by doing so, I conclude by saying taken as themselves and engaged with as themselves, uh, they can offer thoughts um, to, to the whole of Colombia in terms of what peace means. And one of the framing devices I use in the book is to look at the um, concepts of Johann Galtung, who's the father of peace studies, who probably many of you are familiar with his terms positive peace and negative peace. Negative peace is the term used to refer to strategies of conflict resolution which simply end to put an end to violence. And positive peace is referred, refers to a more kind of utopian, broader um, process of peace building which involves uh, constructing values in society to prevent non-recurrence, um, participatory democracy, social justice, that sort of thing. Um, but I don't try to use those terms as Galton uses them, but I use them as an analytic continuum to shift the frame from looking at the peace community just as human rights defenders, which I feel many scholars have done, um, which look at them in terms of their demands for negative peace. They call for an end to the violence that surrounds them. They call for uh, neutrality. They call for the violations against them to stop. Instead of using that gaze, I shift the gaze to looking at them um, from the frame of organic productivity. I look at what they produce, I look at what they create. And what they create, well, what they produce is cacao. And it turns out that there's a whole um, lot of knowledge behind that which we fail to appreciate most of the time in our daily lives. The world quite happily exists without another anthropology PhD thesis, but it can't exist without the people who produce our food. They are quite literally uh, the unsung heroes of the 20th century because they continue to produce food in the midst of violence. Um, and we are vitally connected to them all over the world when we put into our bodies what they have made with theirs. Uh, but um, in looking at them as producers, I also look at them as creators of community. They are creators of community and the values they use in order to create community are values that I think could be analysed under the um, lens of this concept of positive peace building. And those are the values that I think could offer um, something to Colombia and also to other contexts which are going through similar sorts of thought processes to how to build sustainable and lasting peace. And those values include such things as economic solidarity, historical memory, relationship to the environment, um, uh, community work ethic, and so on and so forth. And these are values that we don't have to be rural communities in order to embrace. One can be living in a block of flats and still embrace those values and see them as things that are potentially transformative. And I think um, I'll end by saying that the contribution I hope to make to Colombia is not just to tell the story uh, from a different lens of a very emblematic, very controversial, very stigmatised community, um, which is a very important political story, but also to underline the economic dimension of that political story and the economic dimension of our role as um, non-participants in the Colombian conflict uh, to be inspired by the knowledge that farmers have to um, appropriate the fact that actually farmers who are quite often in Colombia seen as people who have no knowledge, who are not important, who are not educated, are actually the people who, who could offer um, the tools with which we could transform uh, the structures of violence, not only because they have the knowledge of food production, but also because it is the victims of armed conflict who quite often have lived through violence to such a degree that they have also engaged in an analysis of what violence is that is much more profound than anything we read in books. Um, and the, profound, the profoundity, my English gets funny when I've been in Columbia for a while, <laughs> the profoundness of 
uh, their analysis of violence has led to them forming this alternative community, alternative community identity, which offers us uh, multiple paths to peace. I will end there um, and, and let Laura say a few words. Well, thank you so much, Gwen. I, you summarized the book in exactly the way I read it. And so I feel very, very touched by what you've done because I think you, you have really touched something very important. I've always said <coughs> that if I had to teach today a course in political anthropology, I would not know where to start. And I would not know what to put on the reading list. And I think if there is something in anthropology that has lagged behind so much in the last 20, 30 years is our understanding of the political. And that's what you're going to do, I think, with your physics, you know, is to really engage very seriously with what can anthropology contribute to politics. Hmm. And it's so interesting that you're doing that through, um, you know, a, a real component <coughs> of violence. Um, and so, Yes, I'm absolutely amazed by your work. I mean, you know, you're just an Enfield student, and here you have your own incredible book already. You're a model to all of us, right? <laughs> you see, you can do a master's thesis that stands on its own, but you, we, we need to think about the process that led to this. And the process is to be really engaged with the world. And I think that's why you're such an example as well. You are not choosing your subjects of the antithesis out of the latest, uh, you know, sophisticated uh, intellectual, you know, chit chat on, you know, on <laughs> on Facebook or you know, in the last New York Review of books or something. But you are engaging yourself with the world, including a political engagement, and you reflect upon this engagement, you know, that international solidarity that you demonstrated by going there is something that has disappeared a little bit in, in the last 30 years or so. Huh? Um, in my generation, the generation of my parents and the, the previous generations, international solidarity was an obvious thing. And people would even my first daughter, when she went to Cuba in this kind of international brigade, she was a DCL, <laughs> not the same degree, but, you know, it was very exotic. And she went more because, wow, you know, it's really good music there and it's fun, etc., etc., rather than what Cuba represented, you know, maybe 30, 40 years before, where solidarity, international solidarity, meant something very special in terms of the forces, the structural forces that are forcing people into the situations you've described. So, and then, you know, your idea of staying in Colombia to try to understand your practice uh, is also a very courageous move and, and a very enlightened one. Uh? The fact that, you know, being an anthropologist, being a sociologist, being a political scientist, being a historian in a place like Colombia, um, is also being engaged. It's very different from, you know, being cozily back in Paris or in New York, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, and in all my work in Latin America, I have had serious discussions sometimes with colleagues about you know, being a social scientist. Um, and we need both, you see. Um, I was at UCL actually a couple of days ago, and there is this Ecuadorian woman who has worked for quite a few years with the people on which I did my PhD, but as a health worker. And now she comes to London to do her PhD, and she cannot understand how I could see all the things I've seen, because she's an insider, and, you know, for all kinds of colonial, historical, cultural reasons, she cannot see that the Warani have all these amazing things. And so a lot of Colombians would, in the same way, say, what is so special about them? Huh? So it's about this 
you know, crossing visions that, you know, this back and forth and crossing visions that create international solidarity that we're going to find some of the political solutions. Um, we need both, but people who are living in Ecuador, in Colombia, in Brazil, who are living in the midst of extremely complex political situations and extremely unequal system, um, find it difficult to be social scientists. And you wanting to understand what it means to them to be political scientists is very courageous as well. And you learn a lot from them. And you learn also that it was not enough. But you are building on this knowledge. And then you can bring back to them much more by extrapolating yourself from the complicated politics. So that's what I see in your work. Yeah? And I think that your doctoral thesis is going to really enrich your theoretical approach. Because I love the way being so engaged with the world, having to confront these extremely complicated political situations, the, the coat hangers you get theoretically are Pierre Bourdieu and Galtung. <laughs> you know, and of course here, um, in a metropolis, people can laugh, you know, maybe I'm the only one to still teach Bourdieu, you know, in this university. People can laugh about these offers as not being you know, the most sophisticated, again, you know, postmodern, extra turn on what to think about whatever. But, you know, their political engagement is what you have recognized in their work. And you know there is this lively raw source, you know, to which you have to, you have to type, yeah, before you start renewing the theoretical debate about politics. So I think you have the right instincts there as well. Yeah. Um, so I have heard a great deal about this, this community, but I didn't know what it was. And again, reading the book, you did exactly what you said. Ethnography has this power of telling from the people's perspective. And I could really imagine myself being there by reading the book. But as you said, that's not enough. Anthropology is more than ethnography. And that's what you're trying to, to discover now. So what you are engaging is the democratic deficit of the world today and the urgent need of renewing political thinking about freedom and human rights, ideas about justice and fairness, theories of wealth and welfare. Um, and what you've proven to me, once again, is that this creativity, this innovation, doesn't come from ivory towers. It comes from the battlefield. And so social movements are the ones who come up with the great, important ideas on which then academics can ponder. <laughs> and so there is a dialectic there. But I remember, for example, a few years back when people were all writing about uh, land grabbing, you know. Land grabbing was certainly not an, an academic concept. Uh, it was a, a hot idea that people had to come up with in the middle of struggling. And then people could reflect upon it. And so we have this dialectical back and forth between theorizing and, and practice. So as I was reading your account of this Colombian peace community and their politics of victimhood, I could not but think about indigenous politics in the Americas over the last 30 years. It's the same story everywhere. You can talk about the Zapatista movement. You can talk about Standing Rock. You can talk about the Taromenani in my part of the world. And you know, you have what I call indigenous troubles in my work because I haven't been able to theorize more than this. Uh, but these people are peasants, but they are indigenous. Uh, they have become indigenous to this place by deciding that enough is enough. They are not going to be displaced one more time. You know, wherever <laughs> they come from, they have to become indigenous to this place. They have to resist. And the victim becomes the prey at the center. So I have written a great deal about Warani politics. Um, and the way there is this predation and the force of predation, and, I, and that's what I see 
in, in what you are describing as well. So, you know, everybody here is specialist of uh, transitional justice and legal frameworks, and um, I'm not going to have to say much about that. Um, um, this legal knowledge, how you know it can inform this discussion, but. Um, these peasant refugees, their political creativity um, comes from redefining, turning around so many ideas and where the creativity comes. Um, questioning this sterile opposition between civilians and combatants, between home and you know, the rationalities of displacement as well which in the Department of International Development people are not sufficiently questioning, in my view, these humanitarian you know, logics of um, you know, moving to cities, the apparently unavoidable and rational choice, the sensible solution is actually not the only choice. And then, as you show so well in the book, it's not a solution at all. So as courageous victims, these peaceful peasants have turned the discourse of social progress on its head. To remain human, you have to emplace yourself as a community, and that's what we've done. And that's what, in my work, I call becoming indigenous. Indigenous peasant communities have something profound in common all over Latin America. They are communities happily open to markets, but that engage commerce in ways that do not destabilize livelihoods. And this is what Emilio is studying in the Chiapas, uh, with another aphrodisiac, maybe <laughs> coffee, I don't know if it is as aphrodisiac as chocolate, but um, these special commodities on world markets. Um, can we engage with them? How can we engage with them? Um, as you know, some economic anthropologists have argued indigenous peasants ensure that the incommensurable values of market and community remain in balance. Uh, and that's exactly what you describe with their organic culture. Their main mass encompassing value is that balance between market and community. What makes your account so poignant is that the genocidal force of the Colombian state and its, its powerful commercial and political allies had aimed to destroy the livelihood base of San Jose de Apartado. All the subsistence crops had been lost because that's what the army wanted, and to force them out and to force them to go to cities. But the resilience of indigenous peasants lies in their knowledge of the forest, their mobility, and their use of forest resources, especially anthropogenic forests such as the cacao groves <coughs> you discuss in the first part of the book. So in my last book, War and Transformation, I do make this remark, I think, in the last chapter, on why is it that Latin America is so different from Africa, for example? And it's because you have this possibility of people to find refuge zones. You know, they can't be bullied around in the same way. They, you know, they can, they've never lost the capacity of going back to the forest, of going back to, um, to live. Um, they can't be completely alienated from the natural world. And in those places, the cultivated areas and the forest areas are much more intermingled and they are much more on a continuum and they have been for thousands and thousands of years as I am in my work. So that is what is so special to these indigenous struggles. Cacao was first domesticated and perhaps we should say semi-domesticated in the Amazon rainforest where it is still used for its fleshy fruits. The plant then traveled all the way to Central America, where pre-Columbian civilizations turned their attention to the bee, the seed, and processed it into chocolate, an elixir for the gods, a powerful medicine. 
So you evoke the work of Sidney Mintz and the exploitative political, economic, and cultural history for which cacao was then transformed into a world commodity. But what is wonderful in your work is that history does not have to stop here. The historical ecology of forest growth and anthropogenic forests, the cultural artifacts we have inherited from generations of indigenous and peasants making life in forests can unfold even further. And, efflores, and they can efflorescent as exemplar manifestation of Holocene resurgence, to use Anansin's seductive language. And this is where international solidarity and the ethical commercial actions of companies such as Lush come into the picture. And you cannot separate the politics and the economics. And maybe there is a lot to be said about fair trade, ethical trading, the possibilities of it, the pitfalls of it. Uh, it's nothing is, you know, um, a bulletproof <laughs> solution to anything. Uh, but it's true that here there is this other international connection that seems to have been very important. So thank you, Gwen, for your wonderful book and your activism to sustain hope in this scary world. Thank you for sharing the message that those who truly want change and transformation need to take one first step, stop living in fear, which brings with it with it, the courage to reconnect to the natural environment and to its endless possibilities. Well, um, I'm extremely grateful for your very generous comments, Laura. Thank you so much for such a, a lovely reading of my book. Um, and. Oh, I, I, I mean, how do I reply to that? <laughs> really, it's just so lovely. Um, and I, perhaps I'll say maybe three things, uh, just briefly in response to your comments and then, and then open up for questions. Um, starting on the last point that you've made about the, the encouragement to stop living in fear, um, I, I was talking this morning um, to my mother, who has heard me read over and over again bits of this book, who has hosted members of the peace community in her house, um, who's been a constant interlocutor for this whole project, and she said, well, you see, the point about the peace community, as I've understood your work, is that they function as an organism, which is, of course, this very traditional uh, kind of neo-evolutionist anthropological perspective of societies as organisms, which have different functions, and you, know, you have the shoemakers and the farmers and the intellectuals and the theologians and blah, 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 and they all kind of work in harmony as, a, as an organism, um, which is, of course, utter rubbish. Uh, but but <laughs> the point being is it's a powerful metaphor for thinking about, about society. And the peace community themselves, uh, the way they talk about their process of organization uh, is incredibly important to their identity. Um, and in fact, they talk about the organs of the community and their statutes, and I kind of riff a bit about the idea of the organic organisation, because actually organic and organisation have the same etymological root, by the way. Anyway, the, the point being is that actually um, the, the metaphor that my mum was using was uh, the... Um, is it in Kenya, in Africa, where all of the zebras cross the river and most of them get eaten by um, crocodiles? Um, does anyone know what I'm talking about? No? It's, it's a sort of great big migration, the great big migration of wildebeests and zebras and things that have to go either south or north, I don't know. Anyway, they have to cross this terribly dangerous river. Um, but they know they won't all get across. But they are driven to cross. And because there are so many of them crossing at the same time, the majority of them do get across and they survive as a species. So they are intelligent as a collective, but not as individuals. Um, and I think that it's very complicated. You can't apply the same logic to human beings because we do think about our individual integrity and, and life. And so the peace community, in a way, are doing something terribly brave by privileging the collective struggle over the individual struggle. Um, and it's not easy to invite people to follow that path. But in a way, that is the only way we will better ourselves as a global society. I don't know, your comment at the end made me think about that. Um, 
I love the, 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 the fact that you're looking at my work as a, a questioning of how anthropology can contribute to politics. I think that's, I, it's, it's just wonderfully, it's just a privilege to hear it, that that's what it's doing because that's of course what I am interested in. Um, it's very interesting this crossing back and forth and the dialogues between the Colombian and the British School of Anthropology because Actually, in my book launch on Wednesday at UCL, I had Stephen Q. Jones, who's been working in Colombia for a long, a very long time, since the 1960s, and he is a, an anthropologist from Cambridge. And he uh, responded to my external exam. Oh, no. <laughs> well, he's, he knows the Colombian Amazon extremely well, but he also knows Colombian anthropology extremely well. Um, and I recently have, have moved to UCL, and, and I'm now um, doing a PhD actually on the government, having worked for many years with victims of the state, I'm now working on an ethnography of the state. But I found the move from the School of Colombian Anthropology to the School of British Anthropology quite um, a, a very unsettling ethnographic experience in and of itself, because um, they have different uh, rationales. And um, I've enjoyed the struggle, um, and I hope to continue enjoying the struggle, because I completely agree with you that the um, the best academic work is produced when one is able to engage with both. And one of my main criticisms I've, of, of, of work I've come across um, in the British School of Anthropology working on Colombia is the lack of engagement with local scholarship and local anthropology in particular, which in Colombia is extremely rich and has a very important and very politically engaged trajectory of um, working with marginalized groups of all different indigenous, Afro-Colombian, peasant, etc., uh, etc., et um, and and I, I'm I think anthropology is always a discovery of positioning, isn't it? And and how do you um, anchor yourself both intellectually but also politically in relationship to your your object of study, which is both a group of people and a series of political phenomena. Um, and I I think that it's it's um, I'm, I'm extremely privileged to have studied under Miriam Jimeno, who is one of the top anthropologists of Colombia, and she wrote the foreword to my book about uh, precisely the politics of victimhood in Colombia and the use of the term victim and how it's been mobilized politically and so on and so forth. Um, and I hope to continue exploring the creative tensions between moving between the two, two schools um, of anthropology. I agree with the idea of crossing, crossing visions. Um, and perhaps I'll just end by, by appreciating your idea that the peace community's creativity comes from turning ideas on their heads and turning things upside down. Um, and I think that's partly why I became so enamored of them. They are utterly stubborn and utterly themselves. And I think that's admirable. <laughs> so perhaps um, I'll open now for, for questions. <laughs>